her pupils became slanted like a serpent, and this voice comes out of her mouth and says, Who's he? He has no power over us. So I'm looking at this person across from me. The exorcism is being performed. The demon gets this hideous grin on its face and then begins to rise up out of the chair. Welcome to a special Halloween episode of the Spiritually Incorrect podcast. Due to the sensitive and graphic nature of this episode, listener discretion is advised. Subjects include not only demonic possession, but sexual assault, mental illness, and violence. Again, listener discretion is advised. Welcome to another episode of the Spiritually Incorrect Podcast. On this week's episode, we have an interview with an exorcist, super-powered elderly, and that time an axe-wielding demon tried to murder John. I'm your host, Seth Hart. Join with me is Jonathan Lionheart. Hello, Seth. Wonderful for you to invite me down to this realm. You know, I was hoping you would get a more demon. That was very Count Dracula. Well, maybe maybe vampires are just manifestations of demons. Like, maybe demons are like, you know, like Edward Cullen is a demon. Uh, I've long felt that Twilight is demonic, so maybe they're connected. Speaking of the demonic, we have an actual exorcist today. A perfect time for the Halloween season to come and talk about demon possession. Now, John... You got to fit into that in the discussion afterward. You got to say a little bit of your own spiritual experience. Yeah, some crazy, terrifying stuff has happened. My life is haunted, and now I will haunt your lives as well. I look forward to terrifying you later on in the episode. Uh, it's a little too late for that for <laughs> me. But there actually has been, and this is the perfect chance for me to insert myself in to talk about some of the weird experiences that I've had recently. So recently, of all places... At Planet Fitness, my gym. See, I I knew the exercise industry was demonic. I knew it. <laughs> I've always I've always said that. So that's why we never see you in a gym. <laughs> no, in all seriousness, though, I'm at the gym just working out, and I'm facing in the mirror, and I'm starting to do one of those rope pull downs for my tricep, and I've got a bad back, so I got to be careful on these workouts. So I set it at a lower weight, and as I start to do it, I'm watching myself in the mirror. I can't do one. And of course, in my head, this is a horrible self-esteem moment thinking, oh my gosh, I am so much weaker than I thought I was. So I turn around to set the weight down and somehow it's 40 pounds heavier than I thought I had set it at. So initial thought is I'm going crazy. I thought I'd set it at the right weight, but somehow I guess I didn't. So I set it at an even lower weight. But in the back of my head, I'm thinking, did somebody switch the weights on me? So I set it at this lower weight and I turn around and I'm watching in the mirror to see if anything happens and nothing happens. And I start to do the workout again. And again, I can't do the weight. So I turn around and again, it's 40 pounds <laughs> over what I set it at. So either I am going absolutely insane or something is happening. So I asked a guy who was facing the weights and I said, hey, I don't mean to bother you. But has someone been switching my weights? And he goes, no, no one's even been there. So completely at a loss, I go up to one of the managers who I'm good friends with. And I go and I talk to him and I say, hey, I don't know how to tell you this, man, but 
you know, just in time for Halloween, I think you guys have a ghost. And he laughed. And without me even explaining further, he says, so you finally met the Planet Fitness ghost. <laughs> to which, of course, I just sit there with a perplexed look on my face, and he proceeds to tell me about how late at night, after it's all closed up, that they'd see doors opening and closing on their own and slamming and hear walking around once everything went dark. And of course, I'm sitting there just absolutely creeped out at the fact that, oh my gosh, this story just got 10 times more paranormal. Uh, muscles bulge on dead corpses. Pecs flex on those who are not flexing them. What phenomenon of unexplainable things will happen? Did you just spend that whole time coming up with a rhyme? No. Did it rhyme? <laughs> I didn't mean it to rhyme. Pecs, Demons! Pecs flex. <laughs> oh, no, I didn't mean to do that. <laughs> Anyway, so you're basically, your your gym is haunted either by a ghost or a demon is what you're saying? Apparently. So I, I get into a discussion with it and he's like, oh yeah, but this 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 thing always follows me. Every Planet Fitness I've worked at, it's followed. So then I just thought, it's him. He, he's the demon. <laughs> he's haunted. He's possessed. <laughs> it just okay. follows him around, apparently. There was another time recently, I'm on a plane ride and I'm listening to another podcast that I like to listen to. And it's about this mountain in Spain that apparently is paranormal. And quite a few people have gotten lost in this mountain. And the ones that they recover, when they recover the people, they say, why did you go out on your own, usually without supplies or anything? They say, I felt the mountain calling to me. The mountain drew me in, which is just the weirdest, creepiest thing. And they were just telling this story in a very matter-of-the-fact way. I had no idea that I was listening to a paranormal instance when I put on this podcast. It was just one I happened to download for the plane ride. And this was a short little little jaunt from New York over to Toronto. But right whenever the podcast got done, I had the flight map up. The flight map glitched. It said that our path wasn't the correct path. It said instead that we had taken a 3,000 mile deviation to some point over in Spain and then magically teleported back all the way over to our current location. It's like we teleported to Spain for a brief moment and came back. That's what the flight map was reading. And it did it on every single person's thing. Now, I immediately laughed because I'm thinking about this mountain in Spain. So I took a photo real quick because I had no idea where in Spain this mountain was located. And I took a photo. I said, okay, so... If this point is located over the mountain, that's whenever I'm going to get freaked out. I couldn't check at the time. I didn't have internet access. But after the flight got over, I immediately looked up where this mountain was located. And of course, lo and behold, the flight map said that we had been teleported right over top of this mountain and then teleported back. <laughs> Last sound effects, I promise. So I have this photo. I'm going to see if I can upload it with the podcast. If it's there, yay. If not... Sorry about that. You'll just have to take me on faith here. I mean, it's an interesting story. I I don't know if my first thought is demons are real when I hear it, but... It's demons, what, what? John! Embrace <laughs> the evidence know. that's put before you, you like skeptic. I mean, it sounds like a glitchy computer map. It's fine. I, in all it's, honesty, it's... it very easily could. But the fact that it was right <laughs> over that mountain, right when I finished the podcast on that was by far the most hair-raising moment that I've had in a long time. I honestly, I don't know what happened at the gym either. I could just be going crazy. Yeah, I think that's probably the most likely hypothesis. But I, I think what you're saying, 
gives testimony to the fact that most of us have these sort of weird, creepy experiences. They might not be exorcist level demons jumping out at us, but we have these little moments that our subconscious, whether rightly or wrongly, interprets as something sort of demonic or evil or supernatural. And I think what's really exciting about our guest today is that he actually has made a profession out of the demonic. We have Reverend Vincent Lampert with us today for our interview with an exorcist. Reverend Lampert is a American Catholic priest, and he is the designated exorcist of the Roman Catholic Archdiocese of Indianapolis. So this isn't some crazy guy in his basement chasing demons. This is a ordained exorcist with the Catholic Church, and he has been in that position for decades. He was ordained in 1991, and I think you're going to like this conversation. There's some interesting theological discussion, and then there's some crazy stories that will make you question everything and go home and cry into a blanket. They definitely got some creepy stuff in there, so... Fair warning, buckle up for this one. Well, we're joined here today by Father Vincent Lampert. How are you today? I'm very well, Seth. Thanks for uh, having me on today. We're really excited to actually have a, a real-life exorcist on <laughs> on the podcast. So, you know, just to start off, let me go ahead and ask why you became an exorcist. How did that come about? Was this something you chose, or was it something that was chosen for you? It was something that was chosen for me. So I was ordained a Catholic priest back on June the 1st of 1991, so I'm in my 31st year and 14 years into priesthood. So back in 2005, my bishop in the city of Indianapolis appointed me to do this. So when a priest is ordained, he promises obedience to his bishop and his successors. So the, the bishop of Indianapolis told me that he wanted me to do this ministry. Indianapolis has always had a priest assigned to this task, even when it fell out of practice. You know, during the 1960s, very turbulent times, the church had the Second Vatican Council, and many dioceses discontinued the ministry of exorcism. A lot of people even thought that perhaps evil was not really personified in what we call the devil and his evil spirits, the fallen angels. A lot of times people might say that evil is nothing more than humanity's inhumane treatment of one another. So my bishop said, I'm not really sure what I'm asking you to do, but because we've always had a priest in this role, I want you to be that priest and go and figure it out. How was figuring it out? Do you have any stories from some of your first cases? So, yeah, absolutely. When I was appointed, I became one of only 12 Catholic priests appointed to this ministry in the United States. The church says the best way to train to be an exorcist is through the apprenticeship model. But obviously, there really weren't enough priests in the United States that I could turn to, that I could mentor under. So I traveled to Rome in the early part of 2006, and I was able to, uh, to live in Rome for three months. I found a Franciscan priest who was an exorcist who permitted me to uh, observe 40 exorcisms that he performed over the time that I was there. And then I was able to learn firsthand the church's ministry to those who were up against the forces of evil and who were seeking the help of the church. You talk about examples, you know, I still remember the first exorcism that I sat in on. I was uh, talking with this elderly woman and her husband. We're in a small little office room. 
and she's explaining to me why she's possessed. And I'm thinking, well, she doesn't look like or act like she's possessed. She seems very normal. And during the whole time of the conversation, the priest who was training me, his name was Father Carmine. Father Carmine would go in and out of the room. He came in one time and he placed a roll of paper towels on the table and then he walked back out and he came back in again and tied a plastic grocery bag onto the wall radiator. He walked back out again and then he came back in again and he started to pray the prayer of exorcism. And as soon as he did that, the demon manifested. This little elderly woman who had been very kind and pleasant that I was speaking with, immediately it was no longer her. A demon had taken over. Her eyes rolled in the back of her head. She began to growl and snarl. She was foaming at the mouth, throwing out blasphemies against God and cussing out the priest, Father Carmine. He was unfazed. He reached over and tore a paper towel off the roll that he had brought into the room. He wiped the lady's mouth off and threw it in the, the plastic bag on the wall radiator and just continued to pray. Of course, the whole time I'm thinking to myself, what in the world has my bishop gotten me into? But it turned out to be a very good training experience being there in Rome. And again, then coming back to the States, I've been doing this ministry now for the past 17 years. Wow, that's quite a story. Now, are you and the bishop, are they a pretty exclusive group, or are there quite a few exorcists within the Catholic Church? The numbers have grown. The Catholic Church would say that every bishop is the exorcist by virtue of his ordination. It's based on uh, Luke's Gospel, chapter 9, verse 1, where Jesus sends the twelve out and he gives them authority over all unclean spirits. So it's the recognition that bishops, by virtue of their office, and the Catholic notion is that the bishops today are the successors to the apostles, so then they would have that ability or that command, the gift given to them by Christ in order to expel demons, and then bishops at their discretion can appoint one or more of their priests to exercise, if you will, this ministry in their name. So you mentioned right before we came on that in the month of October, you're quite busy because there's apparently a large need for exorcists around the time of October. So I guess that leads to a two-part question for me. Number one, why October? And number two, has the Ministry of Exorcism, you pointed out there was a trend away, but has it been growing in recent years? Yeah, I think October with Halloween coming up at the end of the month, and right now there's a lot of people that get fascinated by the reality of evil and everything associated with Halloween. Even one of the entry points for the demonic into people's lives can be the entertainment industry. And you look at our country today, Halloween has become the second biggest spending holiday right after Christmas itself. You know, people are decorating their yards with all kinds of things associated with Halloween. And many of these things glorify evil, in my opinion, and even draw attention to the demonic. And because there's so much of that right now in the public realm, there's a lot of people then who start wondering whether or not they've done something that may have opened up an entry point to the demonic in their lives. Now, just because somebody thinks they're dealing with the demonic, that's not necessarily the case. They may believe that, but again, the role of the exorcist is to investigate cases of alleged demonic activity and then to make the determination whether or not it's truly something of a demonic nature. And then if it is, then to... Uh, perform the rite of exorcism that the church has laid out. I mentioned earlier that I was one of 12 back in 2005, Catholic priests in the United States who was appointed to this ministry. Today that number is 150. So there are 150 Catholic priests in the United States 
who are now trained to be exorcists. And it isn't necessarily that there's more demonic activity in the world today, per se. I always like to say it isn't that the devil has upped his game, but perhaps more people today are willing to play the devil's game. I think we all know that faith seems to be in decline in the lives of many people. And I like to say that faith in God will lead us in one direction and the lack of faith will lead us in another. And as more and more people are abandoning their faith, then it does seem that the devil is kind of gaining a stronger foothold here in our country. That's really interesting. I've heard that there's a lot more demonic type of activity reported in third world settings and less in first world kind of Western contexts. But you, you would say that that's increasing in the Western context right now, or that we're interacting with it more actively. Yes, and I think the reason for that, I like to say that there's a difference between exorcisms performed in the apostate world and in the, the pagan world, if you will. You mentioned third world countries, perhaps areas where the word of God has not been proclaimed or has really not taken root. You know, I've had the opportunity to travel to South Africa, for example, and exorcisms there, they're performed and it's one and done. But here in the United States, for example, when people are dealing with the demonic, most of the people, I think, in the United States have been exposed to somewhat, some level of Christianity. You know, Christianity built Western civilization. And but because of that, there are many people that have turned their back on their relationship with Christ. Many people who have been baptized, for example, may have become lapsed in their faith. They may say they no longer believe in God, now claim to be an atheist. And it does seem that people who knew the truth of the gospel and then walked away from it, that the demonic has a greater hold on them because they basically said to God, get out. Now, I'm going to be the devil's advocate, probably quite <laughs> literally in this one instance. So... Let's say that I'm really skeptical and I just don't buy that there really are demonic possessions in the world. Now, as an exorcist, what sort of tests do you have to go through to even filter out all these other things like psychological issues or people mm -hmm. faking it? What is the sort of test that the church runs to make a positive case? I will say, first of all, when it comes to the reality of evil, it's biblical revelation and the magisterium, the teaching, the authority of the church that helps us understand exactly the reality of evil. As I mentioned earlier, there may be some people today who say that evil is something of our own making, humanity's inhumane treatment of one another. But when we read the biblical accounts, Jesus makes a clear distinction between people who are suffering from physical illness and those who are demonically possessed. Even when he sends his disciples out, he gives them authority to heal, but he also gives them the authority to cast out unclean spirits. So Jesus himself makes the clear distinction between the two. Here in the United States, you know, as an exorcist, I need to reach moral certitude. I have to believe beyond a doubt that the person in front of me is truly dealing with the demonic, and I believe that the church would cause greater harm if she labels someone as being possessed, and that label prevents the person from getting the true help that they need. So the protocol that I follow, as well as every other exorcist in the United States, is the person needs, first of all, to have a psychiatric evaluation. So the church wants experts in the mental health field to weigh in 
basically asking the question, is there something about this person's condition that is outside of your understanding, your scope of knowledge or expertise? Step two of the protocol would be to have a physical examination by their family doctor, again, ruling out any type of physical cause for what they're experiencing. Step three of the protocol would be to uh, do an intake questionnaire. If it's truly something of a demonic nature, then to determine what was the entry point. What did the person do that gave the authority to the demon to enter into this person's life? Because knowing what the entry point was then allows me in my role to close that door, if you will. Step number four, the church says that there are four signs that I can look for. Number one would be the ability to speak and understand languages otherwise unknown to the individual, having superhuman strength beyond the normal capacity of the individual, having elevated perception, meaning the person in front of me would not know certain things, but if certain things are being revealed, that would indicate that it's a demonic presence and no longer the consciousness of this person as an individual. And then step four, the thing I would look for would be an aversion to anything of a sacred nature, such as having the Bible read in front of the person, the Word of God, being in a sacred space, a church or a chapel, being blessed with holy water, being shown a crucifix, anything, again, of a sacred nature that would cause a violent reaction. Step five, I would say, is the most important. It's to help normalize the spiritual life of the person or to bring the person to Jesus Christ for the very first time. You know, a lot of times people I deal with, they want the demonic to be gone, but the demonic being gone is actually the easy part. The person also has to invite God in. Think of the great example in Luke's Gospel in chapter 11, where it talks about how the unclean spirit, once it's been cast out, it goes and wanders through the arid wasteland and coming back and finding the house swept clean. Swept clean meaning it's gone, but God hasn't been invited in. And then it goes and finds seven other demons worse than itself, and they come back and take up residence in the person. So again, I'm trained to be a skeptic. I have to exhaust every possible explanation about what's happening in the life of this person. So consulting the, the psychiatrist, the psychologist, having the family doctor weigh in. Now, I'm not asking them if they think a person is possessed. I will make that determination, but I need the best possible information that I can get. So these experts are asked to share their knowledge to help me arrive at that moral certitude. Again, beyond a doubt, the person in front of me is truly dealing with the demonic. It's helpful to see this attempt to search for things that cannot be just psychologically explained, like knowledge that they shouldn't have or acts of strength that they shouldn't be capable of. Could we maybe go through some of those and just give our audience some stories? Could you give us an example of a time where you've encountered knowledge being had by the person that they really shouldn't be able to have? Yes. And I think it would be important at least to take a moment and to say the reason that the demonic would be capable of these things is based on angelic nature. So when God created the angels, they received infused knowledge. You know, we as humans, we go to school, we can learn over a period of time. But the angelic nature is such that when they were created, God gave them infused knowledge. It's like a computer being downloaded with information. So an, an angel doesn't have to go to school to learn how to speak Aramaic or Latin or Greek. It can just call it up. So if I know from my working with this individual 
that that person does not speak any of these ancient languages, that would be an indication that it's no longer them, but it is the demonic speaking through them. And when it comes to things of a, a sacred nature, we can say that the elements of our Christian faith, you know, the very things with the demons which the demons have rejected, are literally thrown into their face. So the reading of Scripture in the rite of exorcism, I read from the Psalms, I read accounts from the uh, the Gospels about Jesus expelling demons, basically saying to the demon, "Christ has defeated you before; you will be defeated again." you need to accept the power and the authority of Jesus Christ. And I like to remind people that I don't have any special powers and abilities. If people are relying on me, we're all in trouble. But if we're relying on the power and the authority of Christ at work through the church and his ministers, that's the proper understanding to have. Even in an exorcism, Jesus is not a bystander. He is the main actor. So again, these signs of demonic activity, you know, I've witnessed all of them. The demonic can play on a person's memory and imagination. There was an exorcism in Rome, for example, one of the 40 that I set in on, that when the demon manifested, a possession means that the demon takes control of the person's body, treating that body as if it were its own, using the person's mouth to speak, their ears to hear, their arms and hands to give gestures, their feet and legs to move. And it's always important then once the demon manifests to realize that all the actions now of that physical body are wholly defined by the demon and no longer by that person. So if the person's name is John Doe, I wouldn't say that John Doe is exhibiting superhuman strength. I would say the demon is doing that, but using John Doe's body. So you've actually had examples where you know, little old ladies are able to do physical feats of strength that they really shouldn't be able to do? Absolutely. There might be people who say, well, that might be possible when people are just filled with adrenaline that they can do these things. But again, we're making the distinction between, is it really that person's consciousness? Is, are they truly present or is there a evil spirit operating through them? So one of the exorcisms in Rome, when the demon manifested, this little elderly man the body jumped out of the chair and then lifted the chair up with one hand over his head. And this was an old, heavy, metal swivel desk. I mean, I could barely lift it up, but the demon had lifted it up with one hand over its head and then had this crazy, hysterical laughter and grin and then threatened to throw it towards me. So I'm up here, the Father Carmine is praying the, the rite of exorcism, and I'm up literally doing a dance trying to wrest this chair out of this demon's hands so that I don't get hit with it. Deadpool's advocate here, but aren't there instances where people manifest super strength in high-stress situations? And there's also, you pointed out, other languages. Now, that actually is really interesting because how do you confirm that people just don't know Latin or Greek? What are some instances where this is manifested in individuals that clearly didn't know these languages. And that's why, you know, the Catholic Church says that there's no such thing as an emergency exorcism. You know, you work with somebody over a period of time and you may get to that. It's like when somebody's sick, you have a headache, you don't tell your doctor, hey, I, I need to have brain surgery tomorrow. You know, that you go to see your doctor and they begin treating you. You may get to the point where you need that, but that's a progression over a period of time. So in working with people, 
and getting to know them and the intake questionnaire, then I would know, obviously, that this person doesn't speak ancient Greek, for example. So there are things that I would know about them that they're not capable of doing. And the other thing is that it's also important, like superhuman strength and these other things, which consciousness is present? Is it the individual that I have come to know over the period of time? Or is it now an alien presence, if you will, that's operating through this person's body? So I really need to know who am I conversing with in front of me? And that's why the church, again, is very deliberate in its actions, you know, in knowing, is it the demon? Is it the person as an individual? And there are people that, again, maybe due to mental illness, they may act the same way that people would if they're possessed. But that's why the church always moves in a very methodical way. For example, holy water the church uses. What's, what's the significance of holy water? It reminds us of our baptism into Christ by which we became a new creation. There's no special power or ability in holy water, but it points to something greater. And that something greater is our new life in Christ. So if somebody's coming to me telling me that they're dealing with the demonic in their life, one of the things that I might do is I will bless them either with holy water or with tap water. Now, I will know if the water has been blessed or not. The demon will recognize the presence of the sacred, but that person as an individual will not know. So if I were, for example, to bless them with tap water and there's a strong negative reaction, that might lead me to believe that this might be something more of a mental health issue rather than a spiritual issue related to the presence of a demon. That's a brilliant sort of experiment to see if this person reacts or not, if it's a psychological thing or a supernatural. What I'm wondering is if you know, and the demon can kind of tell, and demons are supposed to be these sort of manipulative, cruel entities, can't they start to just mess with you? Like, I'm going to pretend to react to this water to trick you into thinking it's psychological. If, if these demons really do exist and really are what we think they are, are they playing games even with your process of discernment to just mess with you? And they can. Ab absolutely. They can do that because demons want to give the impression that they're in charge, they're in control. Demons would even say that they're infuriated, that they would even be interrogated by a human whom they consider to be inferior to themselves. And they reach the point where their hatred of the human person reaches such a high degree that they let their guard down, if you will, and they reveal their true character. So they may be trying to manipulate, give false impressions, but eventually their pride and their arrogance gets the best of them and they show their true hand, if you will. I love there's one part of an interview where it's mentioned that something like one in 5,000 cases mm -hmm. or something close to that are actually ruled demonic. So that just, to me, shows the sort of rigor that the church goes through before it's willing to actually designate something a case of demonic possession. But coming off of that, something that occurs to me, and I've never heard an answer to, is a demon starts speaking in ancient Greek or Latin or these other languages. It starts manifesting supernatural strength. That seems to confirm what your suspicions are so that you can then root out the underlying problem. What is the point of speaking in these languages? What is the point of manifesting these superhuman strength? 
yeah, they play their cards because they are, uh, it's their arrogance again and their pride because they're being, as I mentioned just a moment ago, they're being questioned, interrogated by a human person that they consider to be less than themselves. And so by speaking in these languages, by showing superhuman strength, the demon is really saying, look at me and how great I am. Look at how smart I am. Look at what I'm capable of doing. Now, sometimes people ask the question, why would a demon be interested in possessing a human body? They have this great intellect, if you will. What's so great about a human body? And the answer really is at the core of our Christian faith. What's the greatest thing that, that God has done for us is the incarnation. God took on human form in the person of Jesus Christ. Demons, because they wish to mimic God and resemble God in all aspects, believe in their own twisted sense that they take on human form by possessing a human body. And then once they possess the body, what do they do to it? It's tormented. And why? Because the human person has been created in the image and likeness of God, we reflect the divine image. And demons believe that by possessing human bodies and putting them through these theatrics, that they are demonstrating that they're capable of attacking God, if you will, indirectly. Again, if the human person has the image of God, then demons believe that by, by possessing a human body, they are attacking God himself. I don't want to overly sensationalize with my questions, but I, I do have a sense that one of the things we find most interesting about the demonic is that they might give an actual tangible, empirical sense of evidence that the spiritual and the supernatural are real. I, so I don't want to sensationalize, but I'd love to know, is there one or two things that have happened that just knocked any of your doubts out of the park and you're like, nope, that requires the supernatural. I mean, you talked a bit about other languages and strength and those types of things, but has there been one or two stories that just sealed it for you? Yeah, I'll tell you um, an exorcism that I did recently. So as an exorcist, I hear all kinds of very painful and horrific stories from people about how the demonic entered their life. This was a, a lady, she was 50 years old, she had grown up in Mexico, and she had been away from the church for many years. She uh, arrived in Indianapolis. Her neighbor invited her to come back to church. She said, well, I don't know. So the priest from the local parish went over to visit with them. And the priest said, he contacted me afterwards and said that he really felt like while he was there, there was a demonic presence in this woman. So then she agreed to come and speak with me. So. Myself, her, her friend came, and this other priest were having a conversation. And the, the lady shared with me that while growing up in Mexico, her father began to rape her at the age of seven. And it continued on over a five-year period. When she turned 12, her father turned his attention to her younger sister. She was fractured. She was broken. She said that at the time, she blamed God for allowing this to happen. So she abandoned her relationship with God, and then she turned to the world of the occult. She turned to curanderos, witch doctors, brujas, and witches who told her that they could help put the pieces of her broken life back together. But she said everything that they did just left her even more broken than before. She's telling me the story. She is sobbing uncontrollably, and then she looks at me and says, 
will you help me? And I said, well, Jesus is the one who's going to help you. And soon as I said that, her eyeballs turned green, her pupils became slanted like a serpent, and this voice comes out of her mouth and says, who's he? He has no power over us. Now, her friend sitting next to her literally jumped over the table to get away. This other priest that I was with fell to his knees and began praying uncontrollably. He was so terrified. And I got up and I walked over it. And this demon is looking at me with these green eyes, cussing me out again, blaspheming God. And I lay my hand on the person's head and I begin to pray. And then in, I reached in my pocket and took holy water and just blessed the person, again, reminding them of their baptism into Christ. The demon shrieked and collapsed and began whimpering and fell to the floor. Now, this was not the time to do the exorcism. As a priest, I prepare myself. I celebrate Mass. I go to confession. I will spend time in prayer. I determine where the exorcism will take place. I always tell people that an exorcism never takes place in an abandoned house at midnight on a dead-end street during a thunderstorm. That makes for a great Hollywood movie, perhaps. But the devil does not get to choose where he will be defeated. The church herself will make that determination. The following week, we are in a chapel in the city of Indianapolis. When I meet with somebody, it's me, the afflicted person. I require them to bring a family member or friend. And then there could be other people in the room that are there to pray. So we're in the chapel. When I do an exorcism, I will have the person sit in a chair facing towards the altar. And then I begin the rite of exorcism. And the components of the rite are actually meant to force the demon to reveal itself. Because demons would prefer to remain hidden. But we can say that the rite of exorcism is dragging the demon into the light of Jesus Christ kind of like a cockroach, if you will, that prefers the darkness and the cracks and the crevices. But the church drags the demon into the light of Christ. The rite begins by blessing the person with holy water, again reminding us of our baptism into Christ. I will read one or more of the Psalms that speak of God's care, his love and mercy for his people. I will read gospel accounts of Jesus casting out demons. The prologue of John's gospel, the word became flesh, is very powerful in an exorcism. These things infuriate the demons so much that even though they want to kind of remain hidden, they're forced to lash out just like a, a wild dog, if you will. Part of the, uh, the ritual then is the insufflation prayer. So when I bless this person with holy water, there was the demon again. The eyes turned green, the slanted pupils. The demon looked at me and goes, you can't get rid of us. We've been here too long and you're not strong enough. And then began to laugh. But after reading from the, the Gospels, I did the insufflation prayer. It's the breathing on of the face of the person. It recalls when Jesus appeared in the upper room. He breathed on the face of his disciples and said, receive the Holy Spirit. It's the recognition that wherever the Holy Spirit is present, Evil spirits cannot remain. Fear is cast out. So I lightly breathed on the face of this person with the demon looking at me with these green eyes and lightly breathing. The chair actually flew back 10 feet like it was hit by a strong wind. And then there was a shriek and a scream. 
the lady comes flying up out of the chair and collapses onto the floor. Myself and the other priests lift her up, and she is literally glowing and glorifying and praising God. And one of the things that I've noticed in exorcisms to know that a demon has truly been cast out is that a person will radiate the glory of God because the demon is now gone. Many people might be familiar with pictures or paintings of saints that have a halo around their head. That halo is not their glory that they're radiating. They're radiating the glory of God. So much did they unite their lives, their free will, with the will of God, that they literally then will glow, if you will, the glory of God himself. So there's an example. And then whenever I work with somebody, I always put them under the pastoral care of their, of their priest or their minister. I will say that as an exorcist, and I am because I am publicly known, I currently receive 3,500 emails and phone calls a year from people who believe they're dealing with the demonic here in the, from the United States, other parts of the world. They come, they're Catholics, they're Christians from other faith traditions, they come from other world religions, or no faith background whatsoever. So there's all kinds of people who uh, are turning to the church who believe that they're dealing with the demonic. And then my role would be to investigate these situations or to network them with somebody in their local area who will be able to provide them with the care and the uh, help that they need. Now, I know you say it doesn't happen in a barn during a thunderstorm. <laughs> and that's a very much a movie trope. But then you go on to describe something that could easily be a scene from a Hollywood horror film. So it yes. has to, I have to ask, what are the tropes from movies that you've seen that are accurate? I'm assuming you've seen some movies with exorcisms in them. Absolutely. Okay, great. Yeah. What are some tropes that are accurate and what are some tropes from movies that are wholly inaccurate? And what are just some misperceptions about this that people may carry with them? Again, I think it's important for people to realize that all these theatrics of the, the devil and his demons are meant for trying to get people to focus on what the devil is doing rather than focusing on what God wants to do in this particular prayer of the church. In an exorcism, the real focus is on the power and the authority of Jesus Christ. But demons, because of their arrogance and pride, are, are saying, look at me, look at me, look at me, look at what I'm capable of doing. When I was training in Rome, a demon caused the person's body to levitate. So I'm looking at this person across from me. The exorcism is being performed. The demon gets this hideous grin on its face and then begins to rise up out of the chair. And I'm looking at this kind of in disbelief. But the priest training me kind of, he's praying and he has the ritual in his hand. And then he's glancing. You know, he looks over and sees the, uh, the levitation occurring. He glances back at his book. He continues to pray. He looks back over at what the demon is doing. He looks back at his book. He continues to pray. And then at one moment, he just takes his hand, puts it on the head of the person, and pushes the body back into the chair. He did not even flinch or even stop in his prayer to God, asking God to help this person and free them from this demonic influence. So again, the demon was basically saying, look at me, look at me. But the actions of the priests were, no, no, no. Look at God. Look at God. But all of these tropes that you mentioned, you know, whether it's 
its levitation, foaming at the mouth, eyes rolled in the back of the head. You know, I've seen demons, uncontrollable laughter, hysteria. Demons manifest, the person's body will drop to the ground and begin slithering like a snake on the floor. Again, all of these things are the demonic saying, look at me and what I'm capable of doing. But because the devil can play on a person's memory, on their imagination, in the 17 years that I've done this, I don't really pay attention anymore to any of these things. They don't really impress me. There is a, uh, a saint in the Catholic Church, Padre Pio, Franciscan priest from Italy. He died in 1968, was canonized a saint uh, right around the year 2000. And uh, he used to deal with demonic attacks in his life. It wasn't that he did anything wrong. Because when it comes to demonic activity, the church identifies four types. Infestation, the presence of evil in a location or associated with an object. Vexation, physical attacks by a demon. Obsession, mental attacks by a demon. Possession, which is what we've been talking about. A demon taking control of a person's body, treating that body as if it were its own. But there is something called demonic oppression. And oppression is a gift from God. God allows somebody to be tormented by the devil as an opportunity for that person in the midst of their suffering to show their fidelity to God and as a result to grow in holiness and virtue. Think of Job out of the Old Testament. God permitted Satan to afflict him, even though he did nothing wrong, to invite the demon in. St. Paul speaks of the thorn in his flesh, the messenger from Satan, that was sent to torment him to keep him from becoming proud. Padre Peel, again, he would have many people come to see him seeking spiritual counsel and advice and guidance. He said that the devil literally would attack him every day. Padre Peel reached the point where he would refer to the devil as old Bluebeard. So in his biography, he writes that one night when he was sleeping, he heard some noise in his room he woke up and looked over in the corner, and it was the devil. And he said, oh, it's only you, old Bluebeard. I thought it was somebody important. And then he rolled over and went back to sleep. So again, all of these theatrics are of the devil and his demons are, look at what I'm capable of doing. Look at my power. Look at my ability. But again, for people of faith, the focus is never on the demonic. It's always on the power and the authority of Christ. I love that image of someone levitating and the priest just sort of casually lowering them back down and continuing to pray. I feel like from the outside, we're also unused to this, that we imagine that it must just be this terrifying, intense, insane sort of situation where your adrenaline's just constantly up. But actually, I mean, these things can last hours and hours, if not days. Does it get to a point where someone's casting a demon out of someone and you're in the corner of the room almost daydreaming or on your phone or, you know, you sneak out for a second to get a bag of Doritos or you're catching up on an episode of Rings of Power in the room next to it? Give us some of those realistic moments of, of just the things you wouldn't think are happening. But, you know, this is your job. You're right. It, it can become so commonplace. I will say that one of the things I remember the priest that trained me again, Father Carmine, in the midst of an exorcism one time, the phone is ringing in the other room. He just immediately stops praying, walks out and answers the phone. And I hear him in there, like, you know, in Italian, scheduling another appointment with somebody. 
And then the person that's now possessed, the demon is manifesting in front of me, the, all the theatrics are going on. And I'm looking at this and he's in the, he's in the other room on the phone, scheduling another appointment. And then he just walks right back in and picks up where he left off. So there is that danger that it can become too routine or too commonplace that one isn't really present in the moment. You know, as an exorcist, I'm also the pastor of two parishes here in the state of Indiana. And I've done exorcisms on a Saturday morning. An hour later, I'm celebrating a wedding. And then later on that evening, I could have a weekend service. So it's literally moving from one thing to the next. So you have to be well-balanced and to know which hat you're wearing in doing these different components of priestly ministry. Even with that said, I, I will add this on. Being the exorcist, I believe, has helped me to rediscover priesthood as a, as a vocation. I think all pastors today, all church ministers can reach the point because we seem to be so overwhelmed that we view what we do as a job and not a vocation. And I believe the word vocation means a calling from God. We do what we do because God has called us to do it. But since I've been the exorcist, it's helped me to rediscover priesthood as a vocation and not an occupation. And as a vocation, then we can truly be present to the people that we're ministering to and, you know, not off in the corner daydreaming, yawning, or whatnot, but really being present and bringing Christ to these people, no matter what it's, if what we're doing, whether it's the exorcism whether it's doing a service on Sunday, whether it's performing a wedding. Again, to be present in that moment, reflecting the image of Christ to others. That's a beautiful way to put that. But for the people there who might still feel a little <laughs> bit of angst after hearing all these stories, you know, you have on the one hand, someone like Padre Pio, who took the sense of the demonic in a very sort of lighthearted, jokey manner. Oh, it's just you, old Bluebeard. But then on the other hand, there's a sense of severity to this in the sense of don't mess around with witchcraft. Mm -hmm. So in what sense do we wrestle with avoiding certain activities and on the other sense, not taking it so seriously that we can't have a lighthearted humor or mocking attitude towards the demonic? Some exorcists are uh, publicly known. Some choose to remain anonymous. The reason I'm publicly known is I like to speak on the topic to help educate people because I believe that once we know more about the reality of the devil, who he is, what he's capable of, what he's not capable of, then we come to discover that the devil really is nothing to fear. So to me, speaking on exorcism is a form of evangelization because the more that we know our faith, it will cast out fear. Scripture tells us that. Perfect love will cast out fear. So the more we are united to Christ, and we don't have to do anything extraordinary to defeat the devil. It's really living out our faith. First Peter tells us, be sober, be vigilant. Your opponent, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone whom he may devour. Resist him solid in your faith. So if we are solid in our faith, we don't have anything to worry about from the demonic. And we can be solid in our faith as Christians. You know, we go to church, we pray, we read the word of God. It's these ordinary aspects that will keep the devil at bay. But I think there's a lot of people today that have just become bored 
with their faith in God. They're looking for something that seems to be more exciting. And unfortunately, when people are looking for that, the devil will take advantage of that and try to lure people into his traps. St. Paul in 2 Corinthians, Satan transforms himself into an angel of light, and he deceives many people. So there are a lot of people today who are being deceived by the demonic, and I think the ministry of exorcism is one of the ways that we refute that deception and we bring people the divine truth, the truth of God, because that truth will always defeat the devil. Now we're running right up on the end of this interview, but a couple questions that I have to ask before I let you go. Number one, there is a debate within at least Protestant circles on whether or not a Christian, a baptized Christian, can become possessed, or whether or not they can only suffer from that oppression that you mentioned with Job. Mm -hmm. And number two, how would you relate demonic activity to other things, such as ghosts or UFOs or creatures in the woods? To what extent can we blame all paranormal phenomenon <laughs> on the demonic? So the first question is, you know, is it possible for a baptized Christian to be possessed? And my response would be, if one is living out the commitment of what it means to be baptized, absolutely, they have nothing to fear. But there are a lot of Christians in this here in the United States who have been baptized. You know, we might use the term they have, you know, backslided from their faith. And again, if we walk away from the truth once we've known it, and walking away from the faith is basically saying to God, get out. You know, God respects our free will. The only thing that God does not have from us is our free will. And the goal of the Christian life, I would suggest, is to unite our will with the will of God. So even when God created the angelic world and then basically says, with this knowledge that I've given you, this infused knowledge, will you now choose to honor and glorify me? And then the belief is that Satan and one-third of the angels, the book of Revelation talks about how his tail swept one-third of the stars out of the sky. The church would see that as the fall of one-third of the angelic choir, who now refer to Satan as their chief. And then the goal of the the demonic would be to get humans to embrace his rejection of God. But again, if somebody's baptized, they're living out their faith, they have nothing to fear. But just because somebody's been baptized doesn't mean that they don't just walk away from that faith. And when they walk away, God will respect that choice, but then people can put them up, put themselves up against the forces and the attacks of the evil one. So I do think it's possible for a baptized Christian who has backslided in their faith that would experience some type of demonic attacks in their life. And then when it comes to other things, can everything that we can understand be attributed to the demonic, you know, like ghosts and whatnot? I would say you look at the fascination with ghost hunting today. Again, Halloween coming up. A lot of people are going on these tours of the abandoned, you know, mental hospital or prison. It isn't that demons live in these locations. One of the saints, St. Thomas Aquinas, would say that demons as pure spirits, they don't occupy space, they contain the space. It can be kind of heady to think about, but again, if we're in a room, that room's containing us. But a being that does not have a body, but just pure intellect and will, would contain the space. So it isn't that the demons are in the old prison, it's the very things that people are doing that are causing the demons to manifest there. And sometimes these demons will even give the impression 
that they're spirits of those who have died just as a way to lure people in. You know, the fascination with the world of the occult. People go to seances, go see a psychic or a median. You know, people need to be aware of the, the Word of God. The book of Deuteronomy in the Old Testament speaks about not practicing these things because they are a violation against the first commandment, where God says, I am the Lord your God, you shall not have strange gods before me. When people get involved in the world of the occult, then they're looking for a substitute for God in their life. And whenever we look for a substitute for God, we turn our back on God, we can be inviting the demonic in. And the demonic can try to play on our minds in many ways. So again, it is possible that you know when people are making references to aliens and UFOs, the demonic is playing on our imaginations just as a way to confuse all of us. The devil loves chaos. He loves chaos. And I always say that when it comes to the ordinary activity of the devil, it begins with deception. He wants us to buy into his lies. Once we buy into the deception, it leads to division. We find ourselves broken. Once we find ourselves broken, it leads to diversion. We begin to look for a substitute for God. The devil is certainly willing to take that place. And after diversion, it leads to discouragement. People begin to lack any meaning, purpose, and direction in their lives. I personally believe that there are more people discouraged today than there are people who are depressed. The great line from St. Augustine, You have created us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. The human person has the innate desire for God. The devil wants to short-circuit that desire, if you will. Again, he does that by the deception, which leads to division, which leads to diversion, which leads to discouragement. And once we arrive at discouragement, we have a choice to make. One pathway leads to death, sometimes physical. Look at the rise in suicides in our country, sometimes spiritual. Look at the number of people who have been baptized who've now completely rejected Christ in their lives. But as Christians, we are a people of hope. Even when things seem bleak, we know that God is still in control. The other pathway leads to discipleship. People can have a reawakening of the importance of faith and God in their lives, and they recommit to him. One last question for you to end things. I think it's C.S. Lewis who said, the more interested you get in demons, the more interested they get in you. And that we sort of open ourselves up a little bit to the demonic merely by, by thinking about it. And what I'm wondering is, have you felt since you took on this role in the church more of a demonic presence attacking you? And I mean, are we opening ourselves up as hosts by having this conversation and our listeners by listening to it? I think the, the question will be, what will people do with this conversation? Will it lead to a fascination with what the devil is capable of doing? Or will it lead to a renewed fascination with God, whereby we look at God and say, wow, look at what God is capable of doing. And again, if it leads to a greater fascination with God, then it's achieved its purpose. And you're right, what C.S. Lewis said, the more we pay attention to the demonic, the more the demonic pays attention to us. That's the danger again of Halloween, which seems to glorify evil. But again, speaking about the devil in a theological way, like we're doing today, I believe, that's really not glorifying the devil. It's really debunking him. Again, it's dragging him out into the light of Christ. 
where he will be destroyed. Thank you so much, Father Lampert. Any final words? I would just say that, again, to reiterate the fact that the more that we know about the devil, the more we come to realize that he is nothing to fear. You know, early on in the ministry, you know, I was taken aback by some of the things that I've witnessed. But anymore, the focus for me is always on what God wants to do in people's lives. And we have to realize that the human person, again, has been created in the image and likeness of God. We have great value. We have great dignity. And the thing that we can do is simply to uh, love God in return. He loves us. We love God in return. We embrace God's love. I I love uh, the prophet Habakkuk. I'll leave you with this thought. One of the minor prophets in in the Old Testament, Habakkuk, it's a name in Hebrew, which means he who embraces. And what did he embrace? He embraced God. If all of us become people who embrace God, then the devil really has no place to take root in our lives. So the more that we know God, the more we come to realize the devil is nothing to fear. Nice job with the C.S. Lewis quotation. I thought that was actually really good. Where was that even from? Do you remember? I I don't. But if you're interested in it, I'm sure it'll become interested in you pretty soon. That's quite (laughs) terrifying. (laughs) But... Okay, for a Halloween episode, this we couldn't have asked for a better guest to come on because some of those yep. stories actually were terrifying. It's a good thing this is an audio-only podcast because my face, you probably saw, <laughs> I'm making the cringiest face <laughs> while he's describing a woman's eyes going green in front of him and then her chair flying back 10 feet. If this was anyone else besides him, I would probably not take this seriously at all. It's the fact that this guy's just very nonchalantly is saying this is so matter of fact that made it even more terrifying it's just like oh yeah this is an everyday occurrence i mean i always find that people's eyes are green with envy whenever they look at me and my life but i understand how the common mortal might consider this a supernatural occurrence so you're saying you bring the demon out in people i do i do because my holiness contrasts their evil and forces them into the light they're walking holy water. Oh, it's, it's such a pleasure to meet the walking sacred icon in front of me. I have arrived. I have arrived. But yeah, I mean, it was, there's some terrifying stuff in there. There's some more sensational stories, but there's also some deep theological reflection going on as well. And, and also this, him reflecting on how do you know it's a demon and not just some sort of psychological phenomenon and not and not a spiritual one. I thought that was really interesting as well, because I think that's what we're all asking in the back of our heads when we're we're watching these types of movies or listening to these types of accounts. Like, how do you know it's not just adrenaline rush that gives them that strength? How do you know they haven't heard ancient Latin somewhere and tucked it away in their brain and the human brain can do amazing things like pull up quotes that you only heard once years ago, but in the moment you can just recite perfect latin i mean how do we how do you know i thought that was interesting yeah there's an apologetic case to be made there what's interesting to me is the idea of god of the gaps is he just putting in supernatural causes for places that he can't give a natural explanation for so he said you know i want to ask all these experts and when they can't explain it that's when we know it's the demonic. And so I hear the skeptic in the back of my head screaming, this is God of the gaps reasoning here. You're just filling in God for whenever nature doesn't work. But at the same time, the very thing you said, you know, 
oh, they could have heard Latin at some point in the X number of years that they've been alive. Oh, it could be an adrenaline rush so big that we've never seen the likes of it, that a small old man can lift up this ridiculously heavy chair. That seems to be the exact reasoning in the opposite direction. So the fact Mm. that there is a test, as soon as you allow for there to be supernatural causes, and he's not using this as an apologetic case, he says, no, we know there are demons. We know this from special revelation. He started with that. Once you begin with that, you're not using this as an apologetic case. It makes sense to me to say, okay, it's not this, it's not this, it's not this, it's got to be this, right? You're you're ruling out these other cases until you arrive at the only explanation that can account for the evidence, which you're not trying to prove from the evidence, you already know it's there. That to but me see, is a good yeah. case. I like where he's starting and I find that interesting. But I know that for myself, and I think a lot of hearers, one of the things that is interesting about demons is that they do allow for such an apologetic case. That perhaps these are examples of actual evidence of witnessing supernatural things that cannot be accounted for naturally. I I think that is still interesting, even if that doesn't have to be the only way to talk about exorcisms and demons. Yeah, it is interesting. I'm curious how many people have ever been convinced by this sort of stuff. Maybe if they're sitting in the same room, right? Yeah, but I think most people haven't probably witnessed a live exorcism. But I think most of us have had moments where we felt something demonic, whether imagined or not. I think most of us feel a sense of evil impinging upon us at one moment or another, even if that's just in the dark at night and you look out your window and you suddenly get a chill. The experience of evil in the demonic is actually quite a common phenomenological experience encountered across a variety of cultures. Uh, and yeah, in but that enough sense, about your father-in-law. What? <laughs> Oh, your dad? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, this was that was a funny inside joke that four people will get, Seth. Who cares? Go, well, keep going. <laughs> anyways, I just, I, I think the experience of the demonic goes beyond just exorcisms. Most of us have had these types of feelings, you know, whether it's alone at night or out in the woods somewhere or whatever it is. I've had moments like that, and I think most of us have. And that experience, I I don't know if it proves God or demons or whatever, but it it certainly adds an experiential case to to the weight of the universe being a moral one where good and evil really are at play and facing each other. Well, to pull out another C.S. Lewis quotation, I believe in God as I believe in the sun, not just because I see it, but by it, I see everything else. And so you're just giving another illustration, it seems like, of that principle, which is God makes sense of these instances where we feel evil, these evil spiritual presences in our lives. But at the same time, that idea does feel a bit independent from actual possession. Having a feeling of the presence of evil, even as just a sort of subtle spiritual experience, which I don't think skeptics take very seriously that often anyway, but that in itself is a separate question from demonic possessions that an exorcist goes and deals with as a separate sort of independent line of evidence from this actual experience. I feel like these are two separate issues. Yeah, well, I do think it's it's a good point you made about I believe in God in the same way that I believe in the sun, not merely that I see it, but that by it I see everything else. I think that's a good point. Like perhaps our experiences of evil or a sense of the demonic don't prove that God exists. But assuming God exists, 
the existence of God makes a lot of sense of those types of encounters. The existence of a demonic world of spirit forces makes a lot of sense of these daily experiences that we may have. I think that's that's a good point. I was also thinking of the, uh, there's an M. Night Shyamalan movie. I think it was called Devil or something like that. It took in the place, elevator. It, it took place in an elevator. The whole movie took place in an elevator. And it's basically Satan gets on an elevator with this woman and this group and then terrorizes them in this small space. And most of the movie is just horrific and scary. And you think it's a horror movie with a pessimistic, sad ending. But then at the very end, the person says the final line, which is, but don't worry, if there's a devil, then there must be a God as well. And it's it's the sense that the existence of evil and forces of evil might be terrifying, but they also point to the counterforce, the the good force in the universe. And if one of those spiritual forces exists, it certainly makes it more likely that the other spiritual force exists as well. And so as horrible as the encounter with evil and the demonic is, it points us back to the fact that there is a spiritual realm and that the light is fighting the darkness and we can join in the light in that battle. We're not alone. I love that movie because no one ever knows about it. And there's a game called Werewolf where we all play and I'm always the narrator. I'm always the storyteller. And I always use the elevator scene to set that. If you've ever played the game, you have to have a setting where these werewolves are part of the group and they're killing people. And they're. I always use the elevator setting because nobody has ever seen the movie Devil. And it's like the perfect setting for a game like this and me having to come up with yeah, a story on the spot. That's that's wonderful. So I love that you brought that up. Yeah, imagine you're locked in a box with the devil. That's basically the premise: uh, a moving box suspended by a wire that's got buttons in it. <laughs> I think that's the only good M Night Shyamalan movie that I've seen in like oh I don't know since Sixth Sense. Okay, well we could argue about that for a while, uh, <laughs> but I I don't think that's the, the village key. was terrible. Yeah. The village was terrible. (laughs) I do take your point to get back to the God of the gaps thing. I thought it was really interesting how you said that there can be sort of a science of the gaps where whenever we don't know how to explain something, we can stretch the science as far as we want to say that any scientific explanation is better than a supernatural one, no matter how ridiculous. So it doesn't matter how big of an object this old frail woman lifts. It doesn't matter if it's a whole wooden table, or if she's lifting a car, or if she's lifting a building, at the end of the day, we can find- <laughs> It's just the adrenaline <laughs> rush, Jonathan. Yeah, we, we can just keep expanding the possibilities of adrenaline to just say, well, that's still more likely than the supernatural experience. And so no matter what the data, no matter what exorcists encounter, we can always find some scientific reason to account for it uh, to the point where it's almost impossible to ever prove anything supernatural, no matter what we've shown, because everything can somehow be explained by just assuming that the science can expand a little bit more. She's flying around the room, shooting laser beams in her <laughs> eyes, gnawing on people. It's just the adrenaline rush, Jonathan. Obviously, it's, it's you irrational the, Christians. Yeah. Well, and, and like the green eye thing. Someone has probably heard that story and thought, I can find some medical reason why her eyes turned green. And it's like, okay, you probably can, but you could probably find some scientific reason for everything. And, you know, at the end of the day, her eyes still turned green at the moment she was freaking out about Jesus. And that coincidence of things is interesting. And it does feel like if it really happened, I would feel more convinced the supernatural is real 
even if some person could find some plausible natural explanation somewhere, it still would carry some weight with me experiencing that. Well, it's just the very idea of that you can always have another explanation available naturalistically. And if there isn't one, you still prefer the very idea that there can be a naturalistic explanation. That's why I don't think this could ever convince a skeptic. There's apologetics can be divided into the logical case. Is this a thing that we can show logically sort of in abstract away from the human element? But then there's the actual human element of convincing people and showing the gospel to be true. I think maybe in the former case, these cases work. In the latter case, I don't think they do because once someone says, I will not accept it, any sort of non-materialistic, naturalistic hypothesis from the get-go, then it's game over. Nothing that happens. They could be carrying around buildings on their back and flying up and shooting laser beams from their eyes. And I honestly could think of individuals that wouldn't be convinced by that. Well, and I guess that's where you would just say it's a hallucination. Maybe you you literally saw Satan emerge out of this person's eyeballs as a little red man and dance around the room, and then he set it on fire. We would find a natural explanation and just say that they were hallucinating. They knocked over a candle or something, and that's what set the place on fire. There's no physical experience or thing that you could witness that we couldn't naturalistically dismiss as a hallucination or as something else. There's no amount of evidence. And that would be a simpler explanation in their minds than the supernatural, right? A hallucinations, they happen all the time, but supernatural things are, by definition, miracles which don't happen all the time. So you, a hallucination always is a simpler explanation. That's why I always find this human element to it very difficult to supplant with these sort of empirical cases of look, look, because you can always appeal to these sorts of things. I just don't see these as overcoming a sort of radical skepticism, which as Father Lampert noted, we are dealing with today. We are dealing with a sort of radical skepticism and an abandonment of the faith. And so I do think to an extent, maybe on this sort of logical end, Yeah, we can make a good logical case, but if you want to maintain your skepticism, you always are going to be able to. Yeah, no, I I think that's a great point. Okay, I really do want to get to the ghost thing. It's Halloween. We got to talk about him relating it to ghosts. What did you think of that? Like we go into these places on ghost hunts and I've participated in a couple just for fun. Yeah. And something I hadn't thought about until he said that is, am I evoking the ghost by my very presence? (laughs) So real fun story is I went into one. It was just a tour of this old abandoned place. And they gave us these EMF readers, which is meant to measure electromagnetic frequency, which apparently ghosts give off. So don't ask me why, but ghosts apparently give off electromagnetic frequencies. So, all right, whatever. I'm not a professional ghost hunter. (laughs) So I took this and I noticed that if I accidentally like shook it just a little bit, it went off. And it went off in a big way. So we're going around and just to show what great quality person I am, I would very subtly shake it every time I'd go out. I was like, I've got a ghost, guys. And everyone would gather (laughs) around and I'd very subtly shake it to where they couldn't see it. And everyone's like, oh my goodness, the ghosts love you. And so I became the most popular person on that ghost hunt because I figured out how to rig it to where my EVP meter always went off. And I'd take it to like corners or like haunted things. And then I'd shake it. I was like, oh my gosh, there they are. There's a ghost right there. <laughs> I'm the worst person in the world for having done that. But it was the funnest ghost hunt that I've ever been on. Well, is it is it simply that, you know, thinking about spiritual questions 
uh, and ghosts and these otherworldly things kind of scares us and op- opens us up to demonic attacks? Or is it that, you know, we actually think ghost sightings and mediums contacting the dead can be explained by demons. Demonic activity is what explains these encounters. You're not seeing a ghost, you're seeing a demon. Or a demon is the one messing with you and making you see things that aren't there. So so one is saying that ghosts open us up to demonic activity. Another one is saying ghosts are explained by demonic activity. There's another interview that he did where I noticed that he did say that some ghost activity really is the departed soul of an individual. He thinks that's a special grace God sometimes gives. Mm-hmm. So in a way, he does think that there are some ghost experiences, but I think mostly he would say that it is when we go into these places that we're in a sense evoking the demonic activity with our very intentionality. Did I hear that right? Yeah, maybe. <laughs> it was a very interesting talk and I wish we had pressed him a little bit more because I'm not quite certain what that meant. Does that mean going on ghost hunts themselves? are bad yeah yeah in a sense are bad just because we're evoking demonic activity by the very fact that we're trying to in a sense summon the spirit (laughs) of a lost person which he said they pretend to be because it lures us away well i can text the father and see what he says to that right now but hopefully he doesn't (laughs) ghost me bad puns great uh uh well it, it is the season halloween is upon us prepare for a preponderance of Halloween puns, my friend. So there is another instance where I was listening to a monk who questioned whether or not ghosts are purgatorial spirits coming back to ask for prayers. And that is a special grace by God. Wow. That's yeah. that's interesting. Well, and especially once you open up sort of a Catholic saints view of things that tends to be much broader than the protestant one there's this whole spiritual realm of active saints and such that could be involved in all of these types of things like it's just a whole new world i mean this has got me really going back and forth not just on like demonic possessions and trying to see a demon under every nook and cranny but just trying to come up with a sort of universal spiritual worldview now which it kind of feels like i can put to the side nice and neatly and go about my Christian life. But there is, we do believe in this whole cosmos, this whole realm, hierarchy nearly, of spiritual beings that are constantly interacting with the world that we sort of can blissfully ignore and be functional materialists about in day-to-day life. And this whole interview has got me really wrestling with that. I actually have a perfect example of how you can find an explanation to dismiss any sort of encounter. I was on a trip and I was in my room and I suddenly felt this evil force kind of come over me. And I just had this almost audible voice say in my head, demon. And I I just started to like freak out a little bit. And then about 20 seconds later, my friend comes into the room and says, Jonathan, I think there's a demon in the hallway. And I was just like, what? Is that how you met Madison? (laughs) That's not how I met my wife, no. And it was just this moment where like, I had this experience and then someone else at the same moment had that experience and came into my room and like, are we sensing the same presence? Like people don't commonly come into my bedroom and say, I think there's a demon in the hallway. So like that coincidence of events was odd. And then as the, the trip continued on, I went to bed one night and I woke up in the middle of the night and I suddenly... 
I had this sense that like some evil force was standing over me with an axe, just like ready to like chop off my head. This sort of demonic Gimli standing over me. And I just and started- that was your first date. Okay, stop interrupting my story. <laughs> and I, I, so I woke up and I feel like there's some demonic force standing over me with an axe. And I start to freak out. I start praying. My sense of that force goes away. But then I hear this voice in my head that says, Lance. And my friend Lance is sleeping in the bed a few rows over. So I go over to my friend and I start praying for him without waking him up. Not creepy at all. I just started praying for him and I prayed for him for like 20 minutes and then I went back to bed. And then the next morning I was going to go and tell him what had happened. And I went to approach him and be like, hey, can I talk to you about something? And his response was, I don't want to talk about it. And I'm like, wait, what are you talking about? And apparently earlier that night before he went to bed, he'd entered the room, felt this wall of darkness push him down to the floor and he couldn't get up for 10 minutes. And he just laid there until someone came and found him and helped him into bed. And that happened a few hours before I woke up and felt this evil presence say his name and went over to pray for him. So at this point, I'm just like freaking out. Like, this is terrifying. And the final night of the trip, I'm going to the bathroom. I come back out and I feel that dark presence again. And it's just huge. Like, it felt like a wall of darkness was just smacking into me and pushing me down into the ground. And right as it was pushing me down, I saw this ball of like shimmering, shining, crazy light appear out of nowhere and then smacked me in the chest. And then I just suddenly felt like this weird filling of the spirit or something like that. And I just went and prayed over everyone's room. Now, in that story, there are crazy coincidences. I think I've actually seen evil and darkness. And then I see this giant ball of light that I guess is God or an angel or something like that. Like I physically see it and then I feel it enter into me. And yet that happened over a decade ago. It's been a decade and my memory of it started to fade. I'm more aware of the fact that I was young and open and susceptible to what was happening around me. I was in a Christian culture that talked about demons and I'm more and more aware of the fact that like I could totally have hallucinated that or thought I saw it. I mean, it was late. I was young. I was on this trip with a bunch of Christians who interpret everything spiritually. And there's this sense I have now in hindsight that like, I am not totally positive that that really was a spiritual supernatural encounter. Like, I, I think a lot of it could be explained using psychology. And so even though I've seen this physical force manifest in front of me, I still have doubts about it. I think that's just how the human mind works. It doesn't matter what we experience. It doesn't matter if God comes down and performs a miracle. We're still going to find some way to question it, to doubt it. And there's just no amount of evidence that will ever convince us of anything. Because I still remain quite skeptical and full of doubt, even after that encounter. But I, I mean, it's sort of a science of the gaps things. It doesn't matter what I've experienced. I still have this sense that maybe science could explain it. And so I still doubt it. I still, I don't trust it. I'm not going to lie. When you're telling the story and you talk about this demon holding an axe and then Lance comes in your head, I was really hoping that you had like a Lance and we had some Jonathan versus demon epic warfare going on. <laughs> With my, yeah. And then I, we, we ride out on horses. And Huge I, disappointment. I him off. That'd be great. Anyways, I hope I haven't just undermined my authority by talking about a crazy experience. My sense is that people have these types of experiences. Even atheists have them. We just find different ways to explain them. 
And I myself am quite cynical and skeptical towards that experience. I think it may have been God. And yet there's always a chance that it was just some sort of natural phenomenon that I was young and naive and hallucinated. Like I'm totally open to that. I've had very similar experiences happen to me beyond the comical things that I listed in the intro. You've probably heard the story where I was sitting at home one night and on back-to-back nights, I kept hearing things ram into the window to the point where I was so scared, I kept waking up my parents. And it was in the second story. It followed me around and extremely loud. Things were getting knocked off in the house to the point where it only quit after I moved back in for college. It was after my freshman year of college. And to this day, I have no idea what happened, why it happened. All I know is, is that it did happen. And I'd hear footsteps following me around. And again, I could explain it as me hallucinating or whatever. But that doesn't explain why my dog was reacting. It only happened after my parents went to sleep. I'd watch objects fall off. I'd watch the house vibrate. The motion light would go on outside as things would go past it. There's all these physical things. But again, if you don't want to believe that sort of stuff, you don't have to. And you could always just say, I'm making it up. Seth, I sincerely need to apologize. For a couple of years, I was playing a prank on you where I'd come to your house and just mess around to scare you. And I totally forgot about it. I am so sorry. That was me. Explains why there was an earthquake. (laughs) Okay, well, the audience can't see me. Your fat jokes fall upon deaf eyes, blind ears, blind eyes. Yeah, so... I might just end it at that. Might just end it at... Okay, let's end it here. Demons! Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Spiritually Incorrect Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, be sure to give us a five-star review and subscribe. Today's podcast was made possible by a generous donation from Lincoln Christian University, where I serve as an assistant professor of theology and philosophy. So if you enjoyed today's discussion and want to go deeper, check out our online and in-person course offerings at lincolnchristian.edu. Whether you are longing for theological and philosophical depth, or are looking for undergrad and seminary degrees in theology, biblical studies, ministry, counseling, or leadership, whatever it is, Lincoln Christian University has you covered. Sound effects from zapsplat.com. Special thanks to Jordan Birch and his song Starry Symphony, which you're currently listening to. You can find more of his music on Spotify or YouTube.